Defence Dialogue, a podcast discussing contemporary challenges in the area of European security and defence. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Nicholas Novaki. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of the um, Wilfried Martin Centre for European Studies Defence Dialogue podcast series. I'm very happy to uh, um, be discussing a topical issue with you again today. Um, which is uh, the topic of European Union's res- resilience. And uh, with me today, uh, we have uh, uh, my colleague Alvaro de la Cruz, uh, the Martin Center's communications, um, communications and uh, new media officer. Welcome, Alvaro. It's very, very nice to have you here. Hello, Nicholas. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Um, so the topic of resilience, um, this is something that has become a strategic priority like by the European Union, like also in the field of security and defense. And uh, like, if you remember in the 2016 uh, Global strategy was em- like it emphasized the need for the EU to promote resilience, especially in its Southern and um, Eastern neighborhood. Um, but under the EU's current leadership, um, resili- the EU's resilience building efforts have become more internal focused. Um, and this has to do with multiple things like increased great power competition, the COVID-19 pandemic, concerns about the future of democracy, new technologies, disinformation, cyber attacks, etc. So a broad range of uh, issues there. The EU has also launched like several notable initiatives and strategies that have a prominent resilience dimension. Like these include the European Democracy Action Plan, the Digital Services Act proposal, the Security Union Strategy, the EU cybersecurity strategy and the resilience strategy in the EU's external action. And uh, we also know uh, from the findings of the first comprehensive threat analysis that the um, EU conducted uh, to serve as a basis for this forthcoming strategic compass that, that, that there really is quite a bit of threats and challenges that the EU needs to address also by becoming more resilient uh, to various different types of external shocks uh, and challenges. So basically, the union is also hoping to advance its resilience agenda um, through the forthcoming strategic compass, uh, which is a German initiative that was developed in the run-up to Germany's uh, autumn 2020 EU Council presidency. Um, The strategic compass is currently in its uh, strategic uh, dialogue phase, um, which runs uh, for the first half of this year, and then it will be drafted in the second half of 2021 and adopted in in the spring uh, 2022 during the uh, French EU Council presidency. And the Compass has four overall aims. Uh, These are enhancing and guiding the implementations of the EU's existing level of ambition, uh, contributing to the development of a common European strategic culture, uh, defining policy orientations, uh, uh, specific goals, et cetera, in different different fields, and um, providing guidance to the existing initiatives that have been launched uh, since 2016. So things like permanent structure of cooperation, the coordinated annual review on defense, the European Defense Fund and the uh, European Peace Facility. And in the field of security and defense, the strategic compass seeks to make like existing resilience related instruments more operational. And then to add also to the efforts that the EU and its member states will have to make in that field to increase their overall resilience. And uh, Basically, the, the compass has four overall baskets. Like one of is the resilience basket. And I think this will be by far the broadest of the four strategic compass baskets. 
And, and this is, of course, because resilience uh, itself is an extremely broad concept. Uh, the EU global strategy defined it as the ability of states and societies to reform, thus withstanding and recovering from internal and external crises. So virtually everything that the EU does at the moment, like has acquired a resilience dimension, like not just in, in the field of security and defense, uh, because of the th uh, challenges that I mentioned uh, earlier. Like there was, for example, a Franco-Dutch um, non-paper that was published a couple of months ago that discussed the need to boost the, the, the resilience of the EU single market um, as well, for example, to ensure that the EU can be an effective actor. And we know that the resilience basket seeks to secure the EU's access um, to the global commons, like those, so things like the seas, cyber domain space, um, assess the EU strategic vulnerabilities uh, in security and defense, and also enhance mutual assistance and solidarity uh, among the member states. And these are of course vital to the protection of the union and its citizens, like which is part of the level of ambition that the EU has in security and defense, which was outlined by the 2016 implementation plan on security and defense. And um, in a way, I mean, the EU's kind of quest for greater resilience, like is, is also like linked to, to, to the issue of deterrence, like which is something that you generally discuss in the framework of NATO and deterrence like being um, the ability of states to kind of prevent um, hostile acts like from uh, a third country uh, by issuing a threat that would then make that action like too costly for them to, them to cover. But like resilience is a softer entry point uh, that allows the union to kind of take care of like uh, these kind of different types of challenges by boosting its own ability to cope uh, with external shocks and challenges and then making, making it harder also for potentially like hostile third countries to, to um, influence or attack the union. And finally, it's also important to note that the strategic compass will not address resilience exclusively in the context of the resilience basket. The other three baskets uh, will have a resilience dimension, interestingly, as well. Uh, the crisis management basket, for example, will have to address resilience, the resilience of the EU civilian and military operations against things like um, disinformation. The capabilities basket will have to increase the EU's resilience by reflecting on the impact of new technologies such as artificial intelligence and autonomous weapon systems. And then the partnerships basket will have to boost the resilience of the EU's partners against things like hybrid threats, for example. So kind of overall, I think like resilience is likely to be like one of the strategic compasses overarching themes. And in the end, it could even kind of become the EU's resilience compass in the field of security and defense, because like the resilience aspect is likely to be like so heavy, so dominant in it. Thank you, thank you, Nicholas. Uh... Uh, indeed, this is a huge uh, aspect of of uh, every every discussion in Brussels on new capitals right now, regardless of uh, if it concerns uh, typical defense or or uh, modern threats. Uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, resilience is a very broad concept, and of course, uh, not only is it a broad concept uh, for the European Union officials, it is um, a very uh, ambiguous or different concept depending on who you ask it um, about. So, for example, if if we discuss resilience, European the European resilience uh, in in the Baltic uh, states, mem member states, 
they will they will feel uh, resilience affects uh, different things that if you ask for example uh, southern mediterranean states and we'll yeah, focus sure. on of course migration and 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 other threats like uh, in the Baltics, but also it depends a lot on, on the even the, the age group of people you ask, because probably young young people, young Europeans will be more concerned about cyber attacks that probably over 60 or 65 year old Europeans are. So do you think the European Union should probably start with some communication and education campaign on what are the, the common threats to our security in different levels? So people around the European Union have a, a better understanding of, of actually what are the threats, uh, even if they feel far away from, from their day-to-day -day, uh, lives. So we can focus on priorities that actually are important for all of us as a, as a whole. I think these are very interesting points um, that you raised. And I, I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of merit in, 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 in kind of discussing like common threats and challenges or creating a perception of like common threats and challenges like within different European societies. And, and um, uh, like one way of kind of doing this would be to kind of like also like perhaps like discuss um, these issues in the context of the current uh, conference on the European, uh, on, on the future of Europe, which I think would create a, it creates an ex excellent ready-made platform for this sort of thing. It's, it's a pity that the um, comprehensive threat analysis that the um, EU produced like for the strategic compass is, is, uh, is classified. So the only thing we have on, on the threat analysis is um, a very sanitized like two-page memo that the external action service like published um, when it was uh, when, when, the comp when, the, when the analysis itself was being discussed in the council. Uh, but, but I think we definitely kind of need to create a more kind of harmonious, like a more common perception of the challenges um, that we face. And indeed, I think like there would have to be kind of discussions like within different member states, like first of all, and then there would have to be kind of discussions between uh, different Europe, like different people from different member states at the European level. And like I said, I, I think the conference on the European future of Europe, like could really or should have like some sort of session um, some kind of uh, format in, in, in which like ordinary citizens like from different members could come together, discuss kind of what they consider as uh, the main kind of resilience related like threats and challenges that their societies face because indeed you like you said, I mean people from the Baltic states are likely to have very, very different uh, perceptions to those uh, coming from um, like the South, for example, and this is completely understandable. But the key is indeed that like we kind of create a, a greater sense of solidarity and like try to understand like where the people from uh, those countries other than our, our own uh, come from and like why they consider that those are the, the, the greatest priorities for them. Definitely. I think uh, if the discussion is still uh, whether we need to make a more transparent and, and democratic union, of course, these kind of topics should involve uh, uh social uh, uh civil society and uh, and involve citizens in indeed in the conversations and of course openness of our uh debates and and, and papers when well discussed yeah um, absolutely yeah. but if i if i can just add to that i mean yeah. the, the kind of the, the one kind of big challenge like when it comes to kind of trying to like create a more harmonious or more common perception about like threats and challenges, obviously that it takes a huge amount of time. It's not something that usually like happens overnight. 
Um, like it's, it relates to the issue of strategic culture and like strategic culture is something that is informed first of all by geography uh, because like a country like Finland will also always have a little bit of a different perception of its threats and challenges compared to Spain for example by virtue of geography and then secondly by history like history is also a very important like factor in, in exchanging and this and historical experiences also take a long time to, 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 to change what can happen is that there can be kind of a sudden shock uh, to a system like, for example, the 2008 financial crisis, the 2014 um, annexation of uh, Crimea by Russia, or, or or by the or like the COVID-19 pandemic that like we're currently like experiencing, and and like through those sudden shocks, like we create a more common perception of how threats and challenges should be informed. But of course, like in the field of security and defense, like you would never wish for a major shock to happen because usually those are quite dramatic. And, and um, like absent of, um, of a sudden shock that would kind of facilitate the emergence of the more common European perception, I think we, we have to indeed kind of work uh, in the area of citizen engagement and like put people in the same room, uh, make them understand like where they're coming from to, to kind of facilitate this process in a more uh, gradual and a more gentle way. I, I couldn't agree more, of course. Uh... Uh, our audience may say, well, you communication officers are always insisting in communication uh, campaigns. Maybe it is our endogamic uh, thing, but I think it is uh, crucial in this sense uh, to come to a common ground in, in, in the field of resilience. Yeah, and of course, yeah, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I, wouldn't trust, I wouldn't trust this like to EU communications people, because I mean, anything that would come <laughs> any official communication coming from the union would be so dry that it, I mean, it would it would be uninteresting. So the key is really to kind of make make this a thing, make, make this a consultation among ordinary people, not led by kind of EU communications group people. Because those those communications will be so sanitized, yes, so dull and so dry that they will be uninter uninteresting to any any anybody. Well, if if I can think about one uh, uh, threat that probably every European now feels as as uh, important, regardless of their age or and location. Of course, because of the of the timely um, issue, I think it would be um, the sanitary crisis and and how we had a disruption of goods and services because of our vulnerabilities, especially when it comes to the dependency on on a limited set of suppliers. For example, we saw that eighty percent of our active pharmaceutical ingredients are today produced outside of the union, and that shown how weak the European Union can be. Uh, to face one of these crises. So I think that is something that wherever you go in, in Europe now feels like a like a real threat, like a real vulnerability for, for Europe. Mm -hmm. How do you think we can bring back the production of, of essential uh, services, goods, and, and, and this kind of products? For example, medicine, but, but also, um, uh, of course, uh, technicals, uh, technical uh, tools and, and also uh, different electronic systems that are keen for, for, for hospitals, for example. We had this, this conversation after World War II and we decided we needed an, 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 agricultural, an agricultural uh, common policy to not be dependent on the, on the exterior and Europe will never suffer again uh, hunger. How do we make sure Europe will never depend on the exterior and suffer from lack of supplies in, in these kind, of, uh, kind of fields? Good question, and but, but I, I don't think we can become kind of totally independent of the external world, like even after the coronavirus crisis. And, and if you think that we would basically kind of have something like the common 
agricultural policy in every uh, aspect of EU trade, for example, that would basically like turn the European Union into this kind of protectionist like giant that would probably cause more to damage international trade at a time like when, when, when like trying to promote global recovery uh, and, 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 and trying to restore economic connections is, is, is one of the utmost priorities of countries around the world. Um, and I, I think kind of the, this way, although it might kind of sound attractive at first, I, I think it, in the long term, it probably would probably cause more damage. However, we, it's, it's absolutely true that we have to kind of look at Europe's like strategic vulnerabilities in key areas like medicines production, like which you mentioned. And um, like, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a technical expert on, on, on trade or production of medicine. So it's difficult kind of to say um, like which aspects of, of, of the supply chain or medicines production, for example, like would absolutely like have to be brought back to Europe for Europe to have a more resilient uh, system uh, regarding uh, medicine production. But it certainly like does need to kind of have a, have a look at its, its supply chain and like make, make sure that uh, like it gets like if it, if it cannot in the short term, like start producing all the key ingredients of, of, of important medicines, like back in Europe, that it, that it at least kind of diversifies its, its supply chains. Because the current system, for example, in, in which a lot of the key active ingredients uh, for many important medicines like come from China and India. Uh, and if we're confronted with this, another sudden uh, health crisis, like we saw like during the, during the early days of the coronavirus pandemic that those supply chains are extremely vulnerable like when this is a, like a sudden spike in demand so i think kind of we need to balance the, the desire of um like bringing these supply chains like back to europe uh with with, with diversification i think that's that's one point like not all of them can probably realistically be brought back to Europe. So we at least need to make sure that the, the, the range of external suppliers that we use consists of a broader group of countries. I think the second key aspect is that like Europe also kind of uh, develops a more effective security of supply strategy. And, and what I mean by security of supply is that like Europe kind of de develops a way of uh, thinking about like in advance and like planning in advance, like for a sudden shock that would like cause like serious disruption in society. Strategic stockpiling, I think is one really, really key aspect in this. Um, the commission has already developed these REST EU stockpiles like in, 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 um, that are hosted by a number, number of EU member states in which like key medicines, um, health equipment, et cetera, are stored and like which can be used not by only by the host country, but they can be used by other member states like in, in, in the event of a sudden health crisis. So I think kind of strategic stockpiling, not only in, in, in the area of kind of health equipment and medicines is a very, very positive thing. And we should kind of think what, what other kind of material and equipment might be like critical and like the, the supplier which might get, get disrupted in a future crisis. I mean, at the moment, for example, we're also facing a, a shortage of, of microchips. So perhaps like we should also consider um, Kind of stockpiling things like um, like microchips and to, to, to make sure that uh, Europe's industry um, would have a relatively steady supply of them like even uh, if, if, if the normal kind of uh, global supply chains are suddenly disrupted due to shortages. Indeed what a what a position we find ourselves in uh, to decide whether to continue boosting 
free trade and and uh, and liberal politics or to go to protectionism and, and be safe <laughs> it's um it's a tough tough uh, decision indeed i wanted to like just just to kind of add one thing to that i mean i, yeah. I don't think kind of protectionism is is, is necessarily a, like synonymous with safety yeah and i think kind of history history has shown usually usually that when you have economic links and like connections like between like different countries economic interactions like generally promote like safety and stability because like countries have an interest in maintaining like those economic ties um they might not propose like promote democracy as some hoped. Um, we we saw that like with China, but like generally speaking, kind of trade links and and, and open and, and free trade like is 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 good for like global stability and security. And usually, um, protectionism is 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 negative uh, for global stability. Global stability used to depend a lot in the past on the. Um, on the let's say american leadership and many europeans thought that our resilience will be uh, regained again once the biden administration took office but after more than three months in office we don't see that the approach the american approach towards international security and, and uh, defense uh, cooperation with europe is going to change that much do we have already the final wake-up call to to start investing independently and not uh, always keep uh, hoping for the Americans to take care of our defense and resilience. <laughs> I think it depends on like who you ask, uh, <laughs> like, uh, like who you ask, and like from from which country in Europe that person comes. Um, but but the good thing is that the Biden administration is clearly a lot more positive about like what the EU is trying to do in the field of security and defense than the previous Trump administration. Um, the Biden administration is, is quite supportive of the European Defense Fund, for example. They're also very supportive and interested in, in, in the permanent structured cooperation framework. The US, for example, like became one of the first uh, third countries that, that was admitted into the uh, uh, PESCO project on military mobility, like together with Norway and Canada. And the administration is like looking to join like potentially other PESCO projects like later later this year, like which is fantastic because it also like shows those countries that are concerned about the potential dangers of eu defense cooperation to nato and the transatlantic ties that like they, there's no need to worry about this because the us is kind of fully on, on board but i think kind of regardless of like who sits in the white house and regardless of how pro or anti-european like that person like might be i mean ultimately like europe really like does need to like do more in these areas, like not just resilience, but more broadly in the area of security and defense. And, and, and that's partly, uh, obviously, like to ensure that it's, it's able to like take care of different types of threats and challenges in its own uh, geographical neighborhood. But also because, I mean, we don't know, I mean, exactly, I mean, what's going to happen in the future and we need to prepare for the worst outcome. I mean, it's clear, it has been clear for quite some time that the main kind of focus of American uh, foreign policy, uh, foreign and security policies in the Asia, Indo-Pacific region. And, and uh, China is the main concern of the US. And, and this means that like Europe, like although not an unimportant region, like where the Americans like will, the importance of Europe, like will certainly like decrease even further going forward. 
So Europe needs to be prepared like for the eventuality that like there might, uh, although like we do not wish for this, that there might be a conflict between the Americans and, and the Chinese at some point in the future. And then if there is such a conflict, I mean, we have to also like think of things like, I mean, could Russia perhaps kind of use like that, uh, that, that point in time in international relations to try to advance its own interests by, by, for example, annexing a bit of Eastern Ukraine or like trying to uh, uh, cause like havoc within the European Union itself. And if we cannot totally kind of count on, on, on the US ability to, to fight two major conflicts against two major great powers, basically, we have to kind of make sure that Europe is at least kind of more prepared than it currently is to kind of counter threats on its own continent. Uh, otherwise, anything else would be totally unresponsible, in, in my opinion. Well, I think that could be a very nice closing point. Um, Europe uh, could and should be prepared. And uh, I think we have the, the resources and the intelligence to do so. So let's hope for the best. Yeah, no, we have to hope for the best and, and um, like we'll see uh, what will happen going forward. But um, thanks a lot again, uh, Alvaro, for joining uh, me in this podcast. It was very pleasant to have this Thank discussion you. with you uh, today. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I also appreciated all of you who joined um, online to, to, um, and took the time to listen uh, to an episode of this podcast. And We'll make sure to have another episode of you, uh, for you like sometime in the uh, coming weeks and months. And in the meantime, I would like to wish you a very pleasant, uh, very pleasant summer and, and um, a very pleasant day uh, wherever you are. That was today's episode of Defence Dialogue. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.